This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. For Software Engineering Radio, this is Marcus Blankenship. My guest today is Josh Duty. Josh has 10 years experience working for talent development companies in roles from engineering, test, to consulting and management. Today we're gonna be talking about salary negotiation. During his tenure, Josh has learned how companies manage compensation and negotiation. Josh is the author of Fearless Salary Negotiation, which is available on Amazon. Welcome, Josh. Hi, Marcus. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. First, let's start with what is salary negotiation? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I would say at the highest level, uh, salary negotiation is a conversation, usually between uh, a potential employee and uh, an employer, potential employer, to try and discover what the best arrangement is that will make uh, both the employer and the employee satisfied for that employee to do Uh, some job for the employer. So that's real vague, but basically it's a conversation to figure out what's best for um, somebody when they're going to work for a company uh, to make everybody happy so that they have a good arrangement. Is when do these conversations typically happen? There are two kind of primary times that something that most people would refer to as a salary negotiation would happen. Uh, The most um, common one uh, that people would think of is, you know, when you're changing jobs and you've got an interview and then you get a job offer and then you have an opportunity to negotiate your salary to figure out what the best comp package you can get is before you start. And then the other time that um, is also a sort of salary negotiation is when uh, a current a person who's currently working for a company might reach out to their manager or someone else at the company and say, hey, I'd like to talk about um, in, in increasing my salary for you know these reasons. So that's also a, a, a different type of negotiation, but it is a salary negotiation. So those are the main two. When you're switching jobs, starting a new job, trying to figure out what your comp package looks like. And then if you're happy at your current job and just trying to figure out if you can get uh, a better salary, then uh, that would also be a salary negotiation. Is negotiating my salary the same as negotiating for other things like the price of a car, um, negotiating on a home price? Uh, is it the same techniques or, or is there something different about it? I think uh, the answer is you know, sort of yes and no. Um, in a way, all negotiations are sort of similar and usually have common characteristics. Uh, but in many ways, you know, salary negotiation is unique for sort of almost intangible reasons. Um, but a big one is just there's so much writing on it. It's weird to think about, but a salary negotiation could be sort of the highest dollar value thing that a person might negotiate for um, in their life other than maybe a house or property. Um, and so... Uh, it's a big deal, but also you don't get many opportunities at it. Um, even a really kind of aggressive person would only negotiate salary, you know, let's say 10 times in their lifetime, give or take. Um, so it's different in, in the sense that there's sort of more writing on it and it feels like a heavier uh, thing to do. And it affects, you know, every two weeks you see the result of that negotiation in your paycheck. 
yeah, I'd never thought about it being maybe the biggest one because over time, it, it adds up to be such a large amount of money, um, probably even in comparison to like your home or, or, or other things. I think for most people, that's, that's true. You know, if you think of like the kind of standard rule of thumb for buying a house is, you know, you, you can borrow comfortably up to like two and a half times your annual salary. Um, and of course, I'm not commenting on whether uh, I think that's good or bad advice, but you know, two and a half times your annual, annual salary, you flip that over. And what you're saying is sometime after the two and a half year market, a company, you're probably earning more than the value of your home, right? So if you're at one company for three years plus, then the salary you negotiated will be the, the kind of largest asset or the largest financial vehicle that you're working with on a regular basis. Josh, you brought this up earlier that a negotiation is a conversation to get to the best outcome, but best for who? I often think about it as best for one side or the other, but is that always true? That's a good question, and I, and I like the way that you, you framed it. Um, I think a lot of people perceive salary negotiation to be I don't know, something that you might see in, in like a, like a movie, um, you know, an aggressive person slamming their fists on the desk. Um, but it is a, a conversation or maybe even a better word might be a collaboration where, you know, two parties are ultimately trying to figure out, um, what makes both of them comfortable in a situation. So for example, uh, it should be very difficult for a company to pay someone far less than whatever their, their market value is, right? And that's because one person would be significantly losing out there, in this case, the employee. And the flip side is, um, it's pretty rare that a company will you know, drastically overpay, quote unquote, overpay for somebody um, in the sense that they're paying more than they can afford to or want to pay for that person. Um, and so usually that conversation is just about figuring out you know, where exactly is the employer comfortable um, paying for the services, the value that the person brings to the table, and where is the employee comfortable providing that service for the uh, compensation package that the company offers? So this is just a, a really kind of classic example of the way that prices work in markets as you, you, know, you find the, the quote-unquote market clearing price. So uh, where is everybody comfortable? So I think there is a win-win there, um, especially in a well-done negotiation. I think everyone leaves the negotiation saying on the employer side, I feel good about the salary we're paying this person. They've helped me understand the value they bring to the table. And I, as the company, can see the value that they're bringing to the company and how they'll make the company better. And from the employer's, the employee side, excuse me, they're saying, uh, I'm happy with this compensation package. I'll be happy to show up for work every day to do a good job, to add value to the company. And the salary negotiation is an opportunity to have that discussion before the person starts working. So you get to that win-win before they actually start providing that value and, and start contributing to the company. The way you say it sounds really reasonable. Um, and yet conversations like this have been tough for me in the past. I know your book is entitled Fearless Salary Negotiation. I'm clear. I'm curious why you chose that title. Why'd you put the word fearless in there? Um, or what does that infer? Right. So I, I, I put the word fearless in there because I found that um, the topic of salary negotiation is intimidating to people. And um, a lot of the conversations that I have, even now as a, as a coach, I, I, I do a lot of salary negotiation coaching. And if, if not explicitly, implicitly, people I work with will express fear or that they're scared of something happening that is either out of their control or that is detrimental to them. So really common fear with salary negotiation is if I negotiate, they're going to retract the job offer. 
you know, they're going to, the, the company will just say, whoa, 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 you know, we made you an offer. We're being very generous making this offer to you. And now you're trying to negotiate it. That's unacceptable. Offer revoked, right? And I, from the way I said that, you can probably tell that I don't think that's a, uh, it's not a fear that comes to fruition ever, if at all, um, very rarely, extremely rarely, but it's a fear that virtually everyone has. And so I wanted to get out in front of that um, and let people know that there is a way to negotiate salary fearlessly and get rid of those things that scare you. And my entire strategy is built around what you described, which is, you know, that conversation, it's a collaboration. And that's a lot of, of what I'm trying to help people understand when I talk about the subject is, look, there's a process that you can follow. And uh, as an engineer, somebody who was trained as an engineer, I'm, I'm very comfortable with processes and I think most other engineers are as well. There's a process that you can follow that will get you better results by just taking concrete steps and doing discrete things. And I can tell you along the way how we're mitigating risk at every step so that there's less fear involved and you're less scared, which enables you to negotiate better on your own behalf, which is going to get you a better result in terms of compensation and hopefully a better arrangement with your employer that everybody's happy with. You brought up the idea um, of the framework, um, a set of steps, an algorithm, if you would be. Can you give us a high-level overview of what that process looks like? Sure. So the negotiation step one or maybe step zero is actually uh, it, during the interview process. And it's usually in the pre-screen or what I call the pre-interview, where the negotiation will start in a sneaky way when a company will ask a question that uh, I'm sure most or all of your listeners have heard this question at least once. And the question is usually something like, um, so tell me about where you are right now in terms of salary and what you what you would like if you if you come to work for us. So they're asking you for your current salary or your desired salary or both. So that's kind of the for me, the signal of the beginning of the salary negotiation, um, because they're trying to sort of set a baseline that they can you know use later when they're making you an offer. So the the first step to my salary negotiation method is do not disclose those numbers because it can only work against the candidate. Um, I have yet to find a really compelling reason that it works for the candidate. And so that's step kind of zero or step one is uh, don't disclose your current or desired salary when asked for it. Um, and then you kind of fast forward. So now you get past that kind of tricky part of the early interview process and you get into the interview process. Throughout that process, my high level strategy is um, your job as a candidate is to help the, the company understand that they will be better if you're a part of it. And so the way I describe that is you're telling a story about how the company will be better if you're on their team. And so that's through the whole interview process. Everything you do is designed to emphasize that. And the reason this is effective is that, remember, you haven't disclosed your desired salary or your current salary. And so what you're doing is convincing the company that, one, they should make you a job offer, but two, that they need to make you a strong job offer. So when you so you're more compelled to come on board. So you want to switch the company's thinking from what's the minimum that we can offer Josh to get him to take this job to what do we need to offer Josh to convince him to take this job and get him on board? There's a subtle difference there, but it's a big difference in terms of the kind of offers that you'll get. So once you get an offer, just before you get an offer, actually, you want to do a step that I call setting your minimum acceptable salary. And this is just sitting down and being honest with yourself and saying, what's the minimum salary that I require to take the job as I understand it. Um, and you're doing this early so that your objective, so that your, your judgment is not clouded by big numbers that might be thrown at you, especially in terms of quote unquote total comp. So companies will offer 
you know, not just base salary, but they'll say your total comp is $300,000. And they're rolling a whole bunch of things in there that are not things that you can pay your mortgage with like base salary. So you set your minimum acceptable salary, then you get an offer. And now you have your baseline that you're shooting for, which is I want to at least meet or exceed my minimum acceptable salary so that I have a win-win, which is something you and I talked about earlier. This is a way the employee can get to a win-win, which is they either don't go to work for the company because the company could not meet their minimum acceptable number, or they do go to work for the company and meet or exceed their minimum acceptable number. Both of those are a win because I think it's pretty obvious, at least to me, that if, if you can't meet that minimum, then you shouldn't work there. It's not a good arrangement for whatever reason. So once you have the number that they've offered you and you're ready to negotiate and you can negotiate in a way that will get you above your minimum, then you're going to counter offer somewhere between 10 and 20% above their offer, which again, their offer is floating because you have not given them things to baseline against like your current salary or your desired salary. So they're making you an offer that's designed to convince you to take the job, which is presumably somewhere you know, in the upper end of the range of money they can offer you. And then your counter offer is designed to say, well, can you go a little bit higher in that range? So you'll counter closer to 20% if you detect that the company really wants to bring you on board. They're desperate to fill this position. Somebody just left two weeks ago and they have to fill it right now where productivity is going to fall. Closer to 10% if maybe you're just kind of feeling things out and they're feeling things out and there's no particular motivation for them to bring you on right now. And they're just trying to see if you might be a good fit in the future. So once you've countered, then they're going to respond to it. Usually they'll respond somewhere between your uh, initial offer and your counter offer. And then you want to make sure that you kind of keep your foot on the gas, negotiate all the way through the end, try and push your base salary up the best you can. And this is also the time when you get to negotiate fun things like vacation and signing bonuses and things like that. Um, as you peg your base salary, if the company doesn't come up to whatever you asked for, there's an opportunity for you to say, well, I asked for this. You didn't quite come up there. Can you do that base salary you just said? and an extra week of paid vacation every year. And if you can do that, I'm on board. So once you've hashed out all those final details, you've got a final comp package and usually you'll accept that package and start. So that was kind of long-winded, but that's an end-to-end -end salary negotiation strategy overview for you know what I, what I do when I work with people and what I wrote about in my book. That's, that's fantastic. Just in hearing you describe it, there were things you said that I internally thought to myself, I'm not sure I could do that. Do you have, if we go back to one of the first things you said, which is when you're asked, and this happens, has happened to me and I suspect to a lot of our listeners, when you're asked for your current pay or maybe your desired pay, and I think both high, recruiters and companies ask for this, you suggest not giving this as a, a baseline number. How do you decline to provide that information? What words do you use such that it doesn't shut the conversation off? Excellent question. So I call it um, the dreaded salary question. And just so, you know, to kind of zoom back for, uh, for everybody who's listening, that question usually is phrased something like this. So where are you right now in terms of salary? And what would you like if you come on board with us? What would you hope to make? So that's the, the two-part question that we're talking about here. And essentially what they're saying is, what is your current salary and what is your desired salary if you come on board? So the way to answer this question, kind of the first um, answer to this question, the easy one is to take the current salary part. I'm not comfortable discussing my current salary. I prefer to focus on um, the value that I can add to this company and the opportunity that's in front of me. So that's kind of a nice little script that you can use to, to move on from the 
the current salary question. And for the desired salary, you can say, I prefer to focus on the value that I can add to this company. And I want this move to be a big step forward for me in terms of both responsibility and compensation. And so you're emphasizing to the company, again, remember in the interview, you're telling a story about how the company will be better if you're a part of it. A subtle way that you could do that is to say, I don't want to disclose my desired salary because I don't know, but I do want to focus on how I can add value to your company. So explicitly saying you want to make the company better. And I want to do that by taking on more responsibility for you, which is a good signal to send. And I want my compensation to reflect that additional responsibility that I'm taking on. So you're all you're doing the entire time is sort of pushing forward. I want to move forward in responsibility and compensation. So that's my kind of baseline script um, for addressing that question. Um, and, and it that will work most of the time. Most of the time, whoever asked the question will say, well, OK, you know, I tried, but Josh isn't comfortable with that. So, you know, moving on to schedule that first interview. Have you encountered situations where there was a second or third request for that, maybe um, with under the idea of, well, I've got to I've got to write this on this form or this is a box I have to check and fill it in. So I need to put something down here. Or is that just my fear coming through that they're going to ask twice? Uh, no, that's that's uh, not just your fear coming through. That happens. Um, I wouldn't say frequently, but it's not unusual. And I find that this is a combination of sort of company policy and also the individual person that you're talking to. Some recruiters will sort of ask, and I think they're just sort of asking because that's on their list of things to to do when you're screening a candidate is, is, you know, take a shot at getting that information. And if you resist one time, they'll say, eh, kind of shrug and move on. Some recruiters are a lot more aggressive and they'll say, no, I have to have this or we cannot move forward with this process. I've heard that line uh, a number of times, um, you know, kind of vicariously through people that I've coached. And somehow it always sort of magically turns out that we'll look back later in the process and say, huh, we didn't end up disclosing that information. And yet we were able to move on through the process, even though they had to have that. Um, so I think it helps from the candidate side to think of this as a negotiation tactic, because that's what it is. They're trying to get information that they can use to make an offer again in the vein of what's the minimum that we need to offer this person to bring them on. And I, I don't, it's hard to say this without sounding like I'm sort of implying, you know, there's some sort of nefarious motivation here on their part. They're just trying to look out for the company's bottom line and get a good value where they can. And so that's what they're trying to do is what's the minimum that I need to offer this person. And by telling them your current salary and your desired salary, you're giving them really good data that will help them to determine what's that minimum. You want to avoid that so that they think, what do I have to offer this person to convince them to come on board? And you're not giving them those kind of easy out cues of current and desired salary. So if they keep pushing, I found that you can, you can give pretty compelling answers that are almost irrefutable and that most reasonable people will accept. For the current salary, I think a good answer is, I don't want to tell you what my current salary is because that is you know, sort of proprietary HR information about my current company and how they compensate their employees. And I don't think that they would appreciate me sharing that information with a competitor, which you're almost certainly interviewing with a competitor of some sort, at least a competitor for talent. I think that's a compelling reason. And it's hard to argue against the sort of, you know, you're taking a moral stand there, which is I'm just not comfortable disclosing proprietary information about from the company that I work for, especially, you know, implicitly you're saying, I don't know for sure that I'm going to work for you. I do know for sure that my company would not appreciate me sharing that information. That's almost always true unless you work for a company like Buffer where this is all public. 
And then on the desired salary side, if they continue to push and continue to push, I find that a good thing to say, usually what they'll say is, well, I need to qualify you for a range um, so that we're not wasting anybody's time. Uh, again, uh, if you frame this and you understand this as a negotiation tactic, then it makes it a lot easier to see what's going on there. Um, they're trying to get that number. And so what you can say in response to that is, okay, well, I don't know exactly what I would like to make, but if you're trying to qualify me for a range, I'm happy to respond to that range and tell you if it's in the ballpark. So uh, that's usually sort of the the hardest push that they'll make is I want to qualify you for a range so we're not racing time. A good response to that is, okay, uh, why don't you tell me what that range is and I'll tell you if we're in the ballpark. So then you know if I'm qualified or not qualified and we can just move on. I, I like that answer, by the way. It's a little sneaky, but by simply saying, yes, your range is in the ballpark, you are not boxing yourself into that range and still leave yourself wide open to negotiate effectively later on while you know giving them what they quote unquote need in order to continue the negotiation. So that's kind of my long answer to um, how to respond to the dreaded salary question. And uh, while I'm thinking about it, uh, Marcus, I'll send you a link. I, I have an article that's, that's written on that with that script that we talked about earlier. Uh, and I'll, I'll share that with you so you can put it in the show notes or, or use it however you like. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Josh, you've brought up two things here, and I want to drill into them. It was around the idea of ethical considerations almost. Um, are there ethics in negotiation? I think there are ethics, but um, I don't think it's a huge component. I think at the end of the day, a negotiation uh, occasionally will veer into ethical territory. Usually the ethical things are you know, about information disclosure and how this negotiation might impact um, parties who are uninvolved. So, you know, again, not disclosing my current comp because now I'm telling you what my current company pays people like me. And that's useful information that could give you an advantage um, over them in some way. And I don't work for you. I work for them. So I, I don't want to share that information. But I, I see it, um, it's, it's much less ethical and moral uh, than it is a sort of straightforward business value discussion. And so there you know, are a lot of uh, shows now on TV like Shark Tank and The Profit and, and these shows. And I think um, they're kind of helping make this clear to people who watch. But you're just talking about you know, the company's job is to make a profit. Your uh, sort of job or role as a person is to make a living. And so you're just having a business discussion about, OK, well, how can I enable the company to make more profit and in turn be compensated for my contributions there. So I see it as a, a conversation, a collaboration, and a, and a business discussion between two parties who are trying to figure out what's the right arrangement here for us, the business, to continue making a profit or to make more profit or do better business because we're bringing this person on board, and for the employee to decide, you know, what's the value of my time and my expertise um, to make me comfortable contributing to their goal of making a profit. Okay. I have heard people feel sometimes that they were being greedy um, or maybe they were even being unethical by trying to negotiate for a good salary. Um, is there a sense of that it's not right to push too hard, that it's not right to negotiate for a, a, a high salary maybe? Or, or is that something that uh, is more a fear than it is a, a real ethical uh, boundary? I think it's more of a fear than a real ethical boundary. I, I think that some crafty companies will sort of spin the negotiation as though you are having an ethical or moral conversation. Again, I, I perceive that to be a negotiation tactic. So 
this often happens with, let's say, small, smaller companies and startups. Even recently, I'm not going to name the company, but I'm coaching somebody through a negotiation right now with a public tech company that's doing pretty well. And they're putting the pressure on in terms of, well, we can't, we just can't really afford to pay you, you know, market rate because we're really strapped for cash. And I think, you know, that, that is kind of true, but it's, it's also a matter of understanding that the company is working to make a profit. And when they're bringing someone in, that person's job is to contribute to making a profit. That's what shareholders want. That's usually the end game. So um, I, I think that it's more of a fear that people have that they might offend someone. And that's them kind of projecting their, you know, negotiating with a company for a salary onto a recruiter that they're having a conversation with and feeling awkward about putting the recruiter in an uncomfortable position or putting the hiring manager in the uncomfortable position. But uh, you have to model that recruiter or hiring manager as a part of the company that they work for. And, and so I think that the more you see it as a process, a business conversation, then the more obvious it is that it's, it's not an ethical thing. It's not that you're trying to steal money from somebody. You're trying to find the right price for the value that you bring to the company. All right, let's leave that topic and talk about market rate. You've discussed this uh, briefly, um, you used the phrase, what is market rate and how is it important in salary negotiations? So market rate, I, I, I think this could easily veer off into sort of like this kind of, I don't know, wonky economics discussion that would be really boring. But I'd say at the really highest level, a market rate is just, you know, what's, what's the typical amount that companies pay for somebody to do a job and um, bring the kind of skill set and experience to the table that you do. So if we're talking about your market rate, Marcus's or Josh's market rate, that market rate is what do companies generally pay for the expertise that this person brings to the table? So at, at the highest level, that's what it is. And of course, it gets a little bit more refined. And so I break it down into three tiers. There's sort of like what I call the industry market rate or kind of the broad market rate, which is, you know, if we looked at everybody who's a software engineer in the country um, with five years of experience in these technologies, what's the market rate? What are they typically getting paid? And of course, you can see right away that there are some problems there. Like, well, do they work in Miami or do they work in San Francisco? And the market rate is going to be different based on geography. So then you can start to narrow it down and say, well, I'm going to work for a company that's on the West Coast or I'm going to work for a company that's in the Midwest. And so what's the market rate if I narrow it down from the high level industrial rate to that geographic area, which these days people work remotely and all these good things. But I, I find that most companies are still more or less setting salaries based on where they operate because their cost of doing business is driven by the piece of property that they physically sit on. Um, and most of the people they hire will be from around that geographic area. So you start with your in industry-wide market rate. What's the general salary paid to somebody with five years of experience with this thing? And then what are companies in this geographic area paying those types of people? And in particular, just companies, if I can figure out, you know, maybe I meet someone at a trade show or a conference, maybe I can find out even more detailed information about what specific companies that are similar to my company or the company I'm targeting. What are they paying people? And then the last level is, if you can get it, information on what is the specific company that I'm interviewing with or working at paying people with my type of experience in this industry uh, right now. So your market rate is, it's a very sort of broad and, and narrow thing at the same time. It's broad in terms of what's, what's the general average all the way down to what is this specific company pay someone with my level of experience 
and what I bring to the table to do this job. Do I need to know my market rate as I enter into a negotiation? And, and how does that affect what I say and do, my expectations maybe? Yes, you should know your market rate if you can determine it. And most of the time you can. Um, the reason is earlier when I gave my um, end-to-end overview of salary negotiation strategy, um, I talked about the minimum acceptable salary. So your market rate should impact your minimum acceptable salary, meaning when you're deciding what is the minimum dollar amount that I'll accept to do this job, a component of that is what is the market rate for doing the job? And then you'll finesse it based on things you know about the specific company or the opportunity and things like that. So your baseline for your minimum acceptable salary is your market rate. So what is somebody that looks like me with my experience, what are they making in this industry right now? And then you would take that number as your baseline and say, okay, how excited am I for this opportunity? What's the upside for my career long-term? How bad is the commute? What does the team seem like? What's the opportunity look like in terms of maybe getting exposure to new technologies or processes that I can't get at other companies and all those good things. And you roll them all up together into your minimum acceptable salary before you get that job offer. So you can position yourself for a win-win when you negotiate. But that market rate should be your first step in setting your, your minimum acceptable salary. So your minimum acceptable salary might be different per company. It's not simply one number that represents you. It sounds like it takes into, uh, takes into account a lot about the, the company that you're applying for. That's right. So I think that you can uh, set sort of a, a broad minimum, right? So it, the minimum might be, what is the amount of money that I need to bring in every month for me to provide for my family, for example, would be a nice way to think about a minimum. But then you would say, okay, so I know what that number is. And now I need to think about how do I adjust that number for this particular opportunity that's in front of me? So um, I am coaching someone right now who's negotiating um, with two companies at the same time. They've got offers in hand from both companies and we're trying to get the best offer from both companies. And they have a different minimum for each company because the opportunities are drastically different opportunities. And you know the short-term and long-term career effects are different. The commute is different um, in, in all those things. So you start with a kind of baseline and then you would have a minimum for each company that you're talking to. You mentioned in your process, uh, you had a very nicely defined larger process for that you move through in, in this. Is it different negotiating with a large company um, than a small company? The answer is yes and no. So the process that I described is uh, effective for large and small companies, but small companies and large companies usually have um, different things that are important to them. Um, and in particular, I find that the larger the company you're working with, then the more sort of opinionated about the negotiation the large company will be. So some some companies will um, they prefer to negotiate on equity. Uh, and it's hard to get away from that, for example. Smaller companies um, also like to try and focus on equity, but small companies tend to um, emphasize the fact that they're small, they don't have a lot of capital, and you know, do you want to be a part of building something big is sort of the story that you have with, with uh, smaller companies. So broad strokes, the process I described is effective at large and, and small companies. It's, a, it's built to be that way. I, I spent a ton of time when I was developing that process um, that particular chapter on negotiating salaries from my book, I rewrote it top to bottom three times because I wanted to make a process that could be more or less universal. And so it's designed so that if you use the process as I described it, it will be effective for you. 
And I'm also finding ways that I can kind of finesse that process with different companies and different requirements. Um, big and small companies do behave differently, but the process itself is effective for, for both large and small companies. That's great. It, is there ever a time I shouldn't negotiate my salary? You know, I've, I've thought about this, you know, off and on for, since I started writing my book, really, uh, b- because I advocate that you should always negotiate salary. So I'm, I'm always kind of questioning absolute statements like that. I have yet to find a situation where um, the answer is that you should not negotiate your salary. Um, and the reason is that if, if you're following the process I described, then you end up at a place where, again, the company is, is making you an offer. They're kind of making an offer, not quite in a vacuum, but they don't have those, those handy-dandy guidelines to use in your current and desired salary. And so they're sort of feeling out you know, what it's going to take to convince to you to come on board. And uh, your question as somebody who's received a job offer is always going to be, okay, that's a good offer, but is it the best offer that I can get? And the only way to really know if that's the best offer is to negotiate it. And so sometimes it does happen where um, I'll work with uh, clients, um, we'll begin negotiating, we'll do some things, we'll get a firm offer in hand, we'll negotiate that offer. And what we'll find out is we have convinced them to make us the best possible offer and they will not budge on that offer. And so um, the counter offer part of the negotiation doesn't always move the needle, but we did things up until that point to ensure that we did get to the place where we're confident that we've got the best possible offer in hand. And so that's also salary negotiation. So I think it's important to take kind of a broader view on salary negotiation. The negotiation is not simply making a counter offer. It's refusing to disclose your current or desired salary. It's setting your minimum beforehand. It's excelling in the interview process. It's sometimes getting companies to negotiate against themselves. So um, there are ways that you can, without counter offering, you can get an offer to become a better offer from a company. But the ultimate goal is to figure out what's the best possible offer that this company will make me? In other words, what's the most this company is comfortable paying me for the service and the value that I provide? And that's your goal in the negotiation is to get there. And so I think within that um, framework, negotiating is always the right answer because even though sometimes you will run into a wall, you'll find that you've maximized the potential there. Now you know that for sure, which means that when you take that job, you can be confident that I got the best possible offer that I was going to get. I did the best I could in the negotiation. And I can be confident that when I show up for the first day of work, I didn't leave money on the table there inadvertently. Well, as somebody who's a, been a poor negotiator with my employers in the past, a lot of what you're saying is making me think back to times when I didn't do these things. And I don't know that I ever started a, re- a job resenting that I made too little, but I certainly wondered if I could have gotten more. Do you find that uh, if people don't negotiate and they simply accept the offer, clearly your book, uh, everything about what you're telling us is we should be negotiating, but is the downside to us not doing that just that we don't get as much money? Or is there a real fear that we might be resentful or unhappy at the new employer? It's a combination of the two. So I think, you know, everybody would prefer to know that they're making whatever their potential to make is, Um, especially when we're talking about um, money and paying bills and uh, providing for a family and things like that. I think it's important to have that peace of mind. Um, I I also think, you know, so that's the kind of first part there. But then there's also the the regret piece that you mentioned where you might show up um, at a job and eventually if you're 
underpaid relative to what you could have commanded with a, a strong negotiation strategy, you will probably figure that out one way or another. Like you might notice somebody who does the same job you do is, is driving a much nicer car than you are. They could have gone in debt to do that, but they also may just be making more money and can afford more car. But you'll also hear, you know, sort of water cooler conversations. Sometimes things slip out and somebody may not say I'm making such and such amount, but they might say something that, you, you know, your, your eyebrow raises and you say, well, wait a minute. If, if that's true, then he must be getting paid more than I am or she must be getting paid more than I am. And so that's just not a good feeling to have. So I, I think that there's, you know, you want to maximize the salary that you get paid, but you also want to minimize the chance that you'll get into the job, get six months in and realize, oh man, I left a bunch of money on the table. And now that I'm at the company, it's going to be challenging to make up that ground because of, you know, company dynamics and bureaucracy and those sorts of things. I want to get into this idea of um, negotiating after you're at the company, but before we drive that direction, I'd like to briefly touch on the parts of the salary component that we have an opportunity to discuss in our negotiation. You've mentioned a few non-monetary pieces, and I'm curious if you could kind of walk through, uh, do you have a standard list of those pieces that we can use as levers to move in our negotiation? I do have sort of a standard list, but I also defer to whoever I'm, I'm, I'm working with. So I, I typically say you should start by focusing on base salary. For me personally, maximizing base salary rises above all else in terms of priority. And the reason is that you can pay your mortgage with base salary. Um, you can make a car payment with base salary. You can't do that with stock options. And, and, and so I, I usually start with base salary. Then there's paid vacation seems to be very popular. I like that as um, somebody who thinks about dollars and cents in negotiation because the paid vacation time does have an actual kind of real world value. You know what a week of work is worth. And so you know what the value of that vacation is. And it's also more or less pegged to your base salary. So those are the first two. Then signing bonuses and or relocation stipends for, you know, if I have to move across the country or relocate, uh, people like to negotiate on those. Uh, and then you've got other much smaller things like, you know, getting your company to pay your cable bill or your cell phone bill. Um, or if you work out of a co-working space, getting them to pay that monthly lease amount. And this is all done in that. I call it the final discussion, but it's, it's after you've counter offered and the company comes back and says, well, we hear your counter. We can't quite meet your counter. Here's what we're willing to do. And that's when you kind of start going back and forth, seeing how far you can push your base salary. And then you work down, you know, the, the first one or two things in your prioritized list of, well, if once I've maximized base salary, if I don't get to where I want to get, what are the other things that are important to me that I'll go after? And like I said, those are usually, you know, first is paid vacation uh, and, and then we go from there. As you talked through those, I was imagining a previous employer, a particular boss, and the fear that at some point he would say, it's just not worth it. Like, I just, we just don't need someone who's going to want to negotiate this hard and retract the offer actually came to mind. You've said you don't see that happen very often. Is it a real problem? And if, am I the only one that fears that? It's a real problem in the sense that everyone is afraid of it. So it's a, it's a very common fear that people have that they're going to negotiate and then the company will say, I just don't want to deal with this person. Never mind, offer off the table. So I think, though, that I can make a pretty compelling case that will help most people see why that fear is extremely unlikely to come to fruition. So I'm hedging a little bit. Um, I can't say for sure that you won't run into a particular recruiter who just really had a bad week and they're just not interested in negotiating. But 
I have not experienced this with anyone that I've coached. I haven't seen it happen, right? A lot of people have read my book. I'm not getting, you know, emails for people saying I had a, a job offer retracted. I got one email from one person who said, uh, you say that um, companies won't retract the offer if you negotiate. I had an offer retracted. And when I asked some follow-up questions to understand their situation better, I'm trying to say this diplomatically. I'm not convinced that the reason their offer was retracted was that they negotiated. So that's one, ex one sample out of, I've sold hundreds of copies of my book, right? So it just doesn't happen. However, people are afraid of it. And this goes back to the overarching uh, reason for fear in salary negotiations, which is we don't get many opportunities to do this. You only get a few at-bats throughout your career. You don't want to mess it up. And so anything that, that we perceive as something that could cause the, a deal to evaporate is a very big deal for us because that could be one of very few opportunities we have to get a good job. And so I think it's a, a legitimate fear that people have because we understand how people work and we know that you know, I personally would li not like someone to negotiate against me if I offered them something. But salary negotiations are, are different. They're unique. We're trying to find that, that happy medium. So why don't I think that companies are prone to retracting job offers? The short answer is back to the company's job of, of making a profit. Dollars and cents are important to companies. By the time you get a job offer from a company, they have typically invested, if not thousands, tens of thousands of dollars sometimes in recruiting you and getting to the point where they have extended a real offer to you. Often, uh, just in man hours, they've usually burned thousands of dollars. So you've talked to a recruiter for an hour or two. You've had you know, one, two, three, up to a dozen interviews with various hiring managers and sometimes people up to the you know, SVP, director, C-level people. Those people's time is extremely valuable. They've invested resources in, you know, posting the job requisition and all these other things. They're spending lots and lots of money. They might have flown you on site. That could be thousands of dollars, right? And so you get to the point where they make you an offer. They've invested significant money in getting to the point where they can make you that offer. And so from their perspective, this is a pretty big investment that they're making. And so when they make you an offer, they're not inclined to just basically light that investment on fire and get rid of it because you said, you know, you made me an offer. I appreciate that. I'd be more comfortable if we could do this other thing because, you know, back to my strategy, I'm not pounding piss on, uh, fists on the table and uh, demanding things. I'm saying I would be more comfortable if we could work together better if, right? And so you're collaborating with them. And so all that combined, the huge investment that they're making up front, the fact that they have a real need to fill this position or they wouldn't be wasting their time talking to you and the fact that you're collaborating with them and just trying to find the best result results in just an extremely high likelihood that they're going to continue negotiating with you even when you counter. And the, I would say the worst case scenario in 99.999% of situations is you negotiate, you counter offer and they say, oh no, we already made you our best offer. We're not, it's non-negotiable. And so now, you know, you got the best offer possible, you know what the offer is and you can choose to accept it or not, um, usually based on your minimum acceptable salary. Um, so I think it's a real fear. I think it's based on the way that we interact uh, interpersonally with each other as humans, but the dollars and cents for a business don't really work out for them to invest that much to get to the point where they make you an offer and then just pull the offer because you said you'd be more comfortable if they could adjust the offer in these ways. That makes complete sense. Do, do companies expect us to negotiate? How do they view strong negotiators? I think that most companies do expect people to negotiate or they at least allow for the, the possibility that you'll negotiate. It's pretty rare that a company will make you their first offer will be their best and final possible offer. I've seen it happen. I've done it one time. 
uh, when I was a hiring manager, uh, there was one instance where I made an offer to someone and I said, just so you know, we think you're perfect for this position. We're not messing around. This is our best offer. And, it, and I was being honest about that. And we, we ended up hiring that person at that rate. How, how do companies view good negotiators? Is it viewed as a negative thing or does it put them like, do companies think, wow, this person will be like, do they, do, do they look on it as um, a, a positive attribute? Right. That was the second part of the question. Um, yes. So in terms of how companies uh, perceive people who negotiate, I think it's hard to say for sure. I can make a pretty good case, though, that they would perceive someone who knows their own value and has made a strong case of the value that they bring to the company and then negotiates strongly on their own behalf. I think most businesses would perceive that person to be a strong asset that they would like to have on their team because if they're this prepared for a negotiation, if they're this focused on understanding the value that they add, then if they bring that same intensity to the job at hand, they're going to be a good asset. And so I think, as I mentioned earlier, businesses usually exist to make a profit. And people who are business savvy enough to negotiate a salary in an intelligent and collaborative way are probably going to be the type of people who have skills that will enable the company to make more profit using that skill set. So I think, you know, on balance, companies would perceive a good negotiator. So again, not somebody who's just pounding fists on desks and making demands, but, you know, collaborating and doing a strong negotiation, standing out in the interview, they would perceive that person to be an asset that they would like to bring onto the team. Whereas people who don't negotiate, I wouldn't say that it's a red flag, but you miss an opportunity to show what you can really do in terms of thinking through hard problems. A negotiation is a, is a challenging problem to solve. It's challenging to do it well. And if you can demonstrate that you can do it well, be intentional with it, have good reasoning, make good arguments, then I think that's a good signal to the company that this is a, a competent business person who can come in and bring some business acumen to whatever job they're doing. When I was a hiring manager of engineers, we definitely thought that engineers who could negotiate well um, were an asset. Uh, we felt like their ability to persuade and think through and have tenacity and know what they wanted, um, those were the kind of people we wanted at our company. So I think many engineers, as you say, uh, are afraid that they'll be considered high maintenance or difficult if they negotiate or it'll look bad upon them. And yet for me, I, what you say really resonates, resonates uh, the opposite, it was true. We looked upon those people, um, even if we ended up paying them more or maybe if we didn't, the fact that they were approached the situation that way was a very positive thing. I'd like to turn now to the other time you mentioned when we will be negotiating. We've talked a lot about when we join a company, that initial offer, but once you're in the door, uh, and having spent 14 years in an enterprise company, um, I spent far more time getting salary increases than I did uh, my initial sort of onboarding. Um, so I'm curious, let's talk about that opportunity, sometimes annually, to negotiate your salary at the evaluation or the raise time. Is there an opportunity to negotiate? Because that's my first question. I don't know that I ever perceived there was when I worked at a large company, but what does your experience show? I think you came uh, at this question from exactly the right perspective, which is um, most people are aware that there's an annual opportunity to 
if not discuss compensation, to adjust it at most companies. And the question about whether that's a good time to discuss a raise or to negotiate is uh, based on a couple of things. But the big one is, is there budget available? And that question will have different answers at different companies. Um, first, let me take one step back and just say, to be clear, we're talking about not your standard sort of, you've been here another year, here's one and a half or 2%. Thanks for being part of our company. But we're talking about, I want a 10% raise or 15% raise. I want a market adjustment. I want something to say, you know, my salary is out of line with the value that I add and I want to make a significant adjustment, not just a sort of boilerplate standard adjustment. So the, the way that you know whether or not it's sort of negotiable in that particular window is, is there budget for it? And a good rule of thumb for whether there's budget is essentially, does everyone in your company go through that process you described, the, um, the, the, the raise, the merit increase performance review process at the same time every year? Or is it done ad hoc? Or is it based on anniversary date from when people are hired? So if everyone is going through that process at the same time every year, more likely than not, there's going to be a fixed budget at the corporate level that is then kind of sliced up by, let's say, business division or department and then sliced up again by manager. And so there's not quite fixed, but more or less fixed budget that's available. And so, uh, and, and this is a case where it is sort of zero sum. So in that case, if I get a 10% raise and every, the average raise is 2%, either one person is, uh, several people are going to get nothing or a lot of people are going to get slightly less than 2% to compensate for the fact that I'm, the fact that I'm gobbling up some of that budget for my 10%. So there's, the answer is there's really not additional budget or real budget available for, you know, market adjustments and large raises to negotiate. So that's not a great time to pursue that. On the other hand, if you're either ad hoc, which means some companies are going to the system where it's just sort of, you come talk to us when you like to talk about a raise or we'll schedule some time with you if we have a performance review feedback for you. Or if it's anniversary based, which means, you know, every year on the anniversary of your start date, we're going to evaluate your performance and talk about salary. Then usually there's not a fixed budget. And so you can kind of make your own budget or make your case for your own budget to be allocated. So it's a little bit more, uh, let's say bureaucratic. There's more red tape, more approvals that need to be done, but there isn't that sort of fixed budget that you're fighting for a piece of it. Instead, you can kind of make your own budget. So that's the first level is, is there budget? How do you know? A good rule of thumb is if everybody in my company gets raises and promotions at the same time, probably not budget there. So you should go off cycle, wait till six months out, right in the middle between those two. And there uh, may be budget there. And for everybody else, if it's ad hoc or anniversary based, there probably is budget. So I think that that was more or less your question is when's the good time to do it. So yes, you can negotiate for higher salary. You should wait until there's a budget. I think the last thing I'll say on that is you should also be aware that you mentioned being an enterprise for 14 years. So I'm not sure if your company was like this, but a lot of larger enterprise companies will have created essentially a rubric that they'll use to decide how much of a raise any one person in the company can get at a time. So I worked at a large enterprise company where the answer was, if you move up one pay grade for a promotion, you can get a 4% raise. If you move up two pay grades to get a two pay grade promotion, you can get a 7.5% raise. Anything above 7.5%, it wasn't impossible, but it was really hard to do without kind of moving mountains. And so that's something that really helps to be aware of and that hopefully your manager can tell you is, are there strict constraints on the amount of a raise that someone can get in one move at this company, or is it all kind of handled ad hoc? Is that okay to ask? Yes. 
um, usually, you know, if you're pursuing a raise or promotion, you'll put together a case. And before you kind of send that written case, you'll talk to your manager and have a conversation and say, here's what I'm my goal, my goal for this job title that I'm pursuing or this raise amount that I'm pursuing. You know, here's why I think I've earned that goal. Can you tell me what we can do to make this happen and what sort of timeline we're looking at? And so part of that conversation would be hopefully collaborating with your manager to see what's available and then finding out, oh, uh, is there some sort of system in place, a framework that prevents someone from getting an extraordinary raise at this company? And most of the time your manager will know that and um, will be able to either find out or communicate it to you. It's pretty rare that that kind of thing is totally secret. Um, so in that conversation, you can usually learn that from your manager if that's the case. Now at the enterprise, you're exactly right that I worked at. We had an annual evaluation. There was an annual time for a salary increase and it was a, a salary pool. So I took a piece of the pie, but I am hearing more and more, and you mentioned this, companies big and small don't have this regular schedule of times to discuss it. Instead, they leave it up to the employee. If you do work someplace, without a regularly scheduled time to discuss salary and increases, how do you know when you should do that? And how do you open that conversation? Because it seems kind of intimidating. Right. So this is where my, my method is built for this situation that you described. So when I'm coaching people or, you know, I teach a class sometimes to, to kind of walk people through this process, the, Taking control of that situation and making a good case for yourself is, is paramount. And you may bump into these other constraints, but the ability to do that effectively is, is what's key. And the way that you do that is by essentially reverse engineering the raise or promotion that you're pursuing. So I can kind of talk about both at the same time. Raises and promotions are, in my mind, they're separate things. I wrote them as separate chapters in my book. But the process, the actual steps that you take to get a raise or a promotion are virtually identical. And so in both cases, where you start is, what is it specifically that I'm asking for? What is the target job that I believe I'm ready to be promoted to? What is the target salary that I have in mind? And of course, that target salary would be based on your market value research and, and things like that. But the idea is that you want to know specifically what you're asking for. The, uh, a main reason for that is you want to make it easy on your manager. So uh, Marcus, you were a hiring manager, so you probably had some of these conversations. It's much easier to talk about raises and promotions with somebody who comes to you and says, I would like a raise to this amount, or I would like a promotion to this job. Then it is to talk with somebody who comes to you and says, I want more money, right? It's, it's hard to have that conversation because the first question is, well, how much more and why? Those are the two questions that the manager has. And so your job as an employee who's seeking a raise or promotion is to make that manager's job as easy as possible by setting a very clear goal. And then before you ever have that conversation, making a very good case that you have already demonstrated that you've achieved that goal, that you're ready for that goal. So in the case of a promotion, it's sort of easy. I mean, it's not easy to actually execute, but it's easy to envision or to plan for. And that is, what's the next job in my career path? Or what's the job that I'm targeting if I want to kind of make some a move outside of my career path into a different area? What are the responsibilities associated with that job? And what's the difference between those responsibilities and my current job's published responsibilities? That difference, that delta between the job you're targeting and the job you're doing, that's the stuff that you need to do to demonstrate that you're ready to be promoted. This may be a little counterintuitive, I think, to people. I think people um, like to believe that companies promote based on potential and 
you know, this guy's a real go-getter. And so I'm going to just go ahead and promote him into this job that's above his current job and he'll grow into that role. That almost never happens. Again, looking at it from a manager's perspective, the manager is looking for somebody who can demonstrate that they can do the job right now because managers are busy people and they're looking for things to help them be better at their jobs and manage their resources better um, in terms of you know what's available at the company. Um, so you set your, your goal and then you make a case that I've already done everything I need to achieve that goal. I'm already doing the target job that I'm going to ask my manager for or I can demonstrate very clearly that this raise I'm asking for is already justified by the work that I'm doing above and beyond what was expected of me last time my salary was set. So as I'm talking, you can probably see kind of, like I said, reverse engineering this idea that, you know, what am I going to ask for specifically? And then what is the evidence that the thing I'm asking for is currently deserved right now by me? And when you have all those things sort of packaged up and ready to go, then you can go talk to your manager and say, I would like a promotion to this job because all the reasons that I've demonstrated, I'm already doing that job and I'm ready for the promotion. Or I would like a raise to this amount because, and you list all the things you're doing to add additional value to the company, to your team, to save money or make extra money for the company or the team since the last time your salary was set. So in a, that's the my process or my method in a nutshell is set your target, do the work to demonstrate that you have already achieved that target. And then you're essentially just going to talk to your manager to say, here's what I've done. Here's what I would like to do to make it official. Can we talk about a timeline for, for making that happen? Yeah, as a hiring manager, I certainly found it was much less risky to promote someone who I could see was taking the initiative and doing the job without asking for me to give them a pay or a title change up front, rather than someone who said, well, I, I'd like to be a tech lead, um, make me that and then I'll start doing this job. There's a lot of pieces to the job that were subtle and intangible and were mindset shifts. And I think those were the things that when I saw them, um, even if they weren't able to delegate out to the team because they weren't in that position yet, there was a lot of ways they could be doing things to show me that they were serious and ready for that. My guess is though not all people listening feel like they have the ability to start doing the job they want. Um, are there tips or things you can recommend, Josh, that would move people in that direction, even if they're not the manager, um, even if they're not the product owner or whatever the new role is that they want to do? Yes, definitely. So when you've done what we described, which is set your target, and then identified it, if we're talking in particular about a promotion, then you identified specific responsibilities that the job you're targeting requires uh, in the job description, right? And so you'll find that those responsibilities that you need to accomplish will usually fall into one of two categories. One of them is kind of the easy stuff, which is the stuff that you can do without any support. So, um, you know, just, just things that don't, you know, for example, you mentioned, you know, mentoring somebody or training somebody. You can't just sort of show up at somebody's desk and say, I'm going to mentor you now. So you would need help on that. But the other things like be more productive or, you know, manage a bigger portfolio. You can ask, you know, can I, I'd like to take on this project so that I have a, a deeper portfolio. Or you may find that there's some reporting that, that the next uh, job up from yours, there's some reports, you know, monthly reports that that role 
creates and presents to management. And you can start just creating those reports a lot of times with data that you can get, you know, from inside the company. So there's the, the stuff that you can do on your own. And in that case, you've got a list of things that you need to do. You know the things you could do on your own. And so you begin, you know, just executing on those things. How do I get those things done? But you'll also find, as you mentioned, some things that you just can't do on your own, like mentoring or working with large enterprise clients. You can't just kind of go grab one of those. You may need it assigned to you. And so you have to kind of put your hat in the ring. And so that's when you would collaborate with your manager and let your manager know, hey, by the way, I'm interested in being promoted to this other job and I can see what the responsibilities are for that job. I see that it requires me to manage a large enterprise project. So can you help me get assigned to a large enterprise project in the next 90 days or the next one that comes in and ask your manager to help give you those things. Or I see that it requires me to mentor somebody. I know these two junior developers were just hired and I'd be happy to mentor them. Can you help me arrange that? Is it okay if, if you introduce me to those two junior developers and I can begin mentoring them to kind of get that under my belt? So you'll have to go to your manager and kind of collaborate. Um, the alternative would be, you know, kind of, like I said, like sort of just dropping by somebody's desk and saying, I'm going to mentor you now because I want to get promoted. I don't think that would go over very well. So those things, again, asking your manager for support is good because one, they'll have a heads up that you're pursuing a promotion. That's good for them to know. And two, you'll be asking for their help, enlisting their help to do those things so that now you're collaborating on the things you're trying to do to get promoted. So now you're kind of bringing them onto your team and asking for their help, um, which should be beneficial to you. Yeah, as I hear that with my manager ears, I cannot imagine telling someone, no, you can't help mentor, no, you can't help train, no, you can't work on uh, this kind of project. Um, you're not asking me for money. You're asking me for something that's entirely within my realm of ability to grant. And um, you're showing me that you're motivated, uh, which is enormously important to me as a manager. Josh, this has been really interesting. I really appreciate your coming on today. What have I forgotten to ask about negotiation that people need to know? Gosh, that's a really good question, Marcus. I don't think you've forgotten to ask anything. I, I kind of, you know, I talk about this subject a lot. And so I, I can't think of any topics that we didn't get to that I think are crucial topics for people. I think um, your questions enabled me to kind of hit on all the, all the good highlights uh, so I think I don't think there's anything that I can think of. I think we we hit all the really good points. And I think that um, everybody listening should now have kind of a good idea of how to negotiate an interview when changing companies, but also how to how to move up a level in terms of salary or uh, job responsibilities at your current company. Great. Josh, where can people find you online? Um, where can they find your book? Great. So I'll I'll. Uh, um, start with where you can find me and then give you two two places that you can find my book and, and some some stuff that I think will be really useful to your listeners. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Josh Duty on Twitter. Pretty easy to find and I'm on there. I'm pretty active and I'm also on LinkedIn. So if you look for Josh Duty on LinkedIn, I'm there. My book is at fearlesssalarynegotiation.com and I also have a, a free promotion course for getting promoted at, wor at work that walks through that process. It's an email course and you can find that at jobpromotioncourse.com. Um, I think that might be particularly useful. I know, you know, most people listening to this probably thought, you know, how to interview and how to negotiate was pretty interesting, but I'm not doing that anytime soon. Um, but most people um, are probably at work and they're thinking, I would like to explore, you know, how do I move to that next job? How do I, how do I get more responsibility? And so uh, jobpromotioncourse.com uh, will get you to a free seven-day email course that you can take um, to walk through the process that I described with a worksheet and some other good, some other good resources too. 
Josh, thank you so much for, show, uh, for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Marcus. It was a lot of fun. Getting software to your users quickly and reliably is the most important part of being a software engineer. SnapCI's cloud-based continuous integration and continuous deployment tool lets you set up in minutes with your GitHub account, and within a few clicks, we'll have your first pipeline running. Discover and fix your bugs quickly before pushing to production by setting up stages from simple ones to complex that run automatically when you push your changes. Need more speed? Run tests in parallel with expanded workers and get your feedback fast. Deploy to Heroku, AWS, and more. We even integrate with Slack to give you updates on your builds. Go to snap.ci slash software radio and build, test, and deploy free for 30 days. SnapCI embodies the lessons that ThoughtWorks has learned from 20 years of software deployment. The same lessons that have been written about by Martin Fowler and Jez Humble. Check it out at snap.ci slash software radio. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can write comments on each episode on the website or write a review on iTunes. Mention or message us on Twitter, at SE Radio, or search for the Software Engineering Radio Group on LinkedIn, Google+, or Facebook. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Thanks again for your support.